0: Welcome to the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum, I'm Rob Lyons, as well as being the Science and Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas, I'm also the Convener of the Economy Forum. Um, The war in Ukraine has been like an earthquake under international relations, Russia has become a pariah facing heavy economic sanctions, while European countries in particular scramble around to find alternative sources of energy, fertiliser and much more. China and India could play important roles in providing an alternative outlet for Russian oil and gas, perhaps even for payments as well. But even before the current conflict, the Covid pandemic had sparked a discussion about the West's over reliance on Chinese manufacturing and the need to be more self-reliant. Indeed, the assumption that the world market will provide has been increasingly questioned as countries have become more protectionist. So tonight we'll discuss these more long standing issues and how things may play out in the future. Now, before I introduce our speaker, I just want to say that the Academy of Ideas has been determined through throughout the past couple of years, while physical life has often been uh, locked down, that intellectual life must not be locked down. While the COVID restrictions have largely gone, we're taking advantage of Zoom to run free online events as well as in-person events. While we don't charge for these events, they, sometimes, they still involve time and effort to bring together. So if you'd like to chip in with the price of a pint, or even a large round support our work, please visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support. And the link is in the chat. Thanks to my colleague, Alistair Donalds. Thank you very much, Alistair. Um, Right, I'm delighted uh, that our speaker tonight is Phil Mullen. He's a leading light in the Economy Forum. Uh, Phil is a writer, lecturer and business manager and the author of three books. Most pertinently for tonight's discussion, his latest book, Beyond confrontation, globalists, nationalists, and their discontents addresses the crumbling of the post 1945 world order and the intensification of international rivalries. Excuse me. So, uh, Phil's going to um, uh, speak for about 25 minutes or so, and then the floor will be open to uh, questions and comments. So, over to you, Phil.
1: Great. Thank you very much. uh thank you very much rob um although the uh, th- although today it seems thankfully the ukrainians of the upper hand in the war at the moment uh, the winner of the military conflict does of course remain unclear uh, however i think there's already one winner from this war and that's the idea of a reversal or the death of globalization, which is a theme propping up everywhere in the economic coverage uh, of the past few weeks. For instance, Larry Fink, who's the boss of the world's uh, largest asset manager, BlackRock, he covered this in his annual letter to shareholders, which you may know is a letter which has become a must-read for gauging where and what American financial business leaders are thinking about. And in the letter think declared a couple of weeks ago that Russia's invasion, quote, has put an end to the globalization we've experienced for the last three decades. Now, before I get into the specifics of the uh, economic repercussions of today's geopolitical changes, um, I reject this prism of globalization and deglobalization to summarize what's been happening and what might be changing. Quite simply, world economic developments do not follow the sort of dichotomy described by Fink uh, of having had three decades of globalization, and now that's over, or at least is on the way out. This either-or, more or less, counterposition of globalization to deglobalization uh, is too shallow, I think, to provide clarity. And this um, underlies the point made on the blurb for this evening's forum, which is that globalization has had obituaries published many times before. Uh, They were like after the financial crash of 2008, uh, after the Brexit vote in 2016, and then the election of Trump. Uh, And of course we had more obituaries following the pandemic lockdowns and the accompanying disruption of global supply chains. But when something is declared dead, and then seemingly survives so that it can be declared dead again, a couple of years later. And this recurs even a couple more times. uh, It should, I think, ring a bell about how useful uh, is this concept. Rather, I'd argue that quite specific economic trends and what they mean get lost when portrayed as if they're part of an ingrained, almost natural cycle or wave of capitalism. So nowadays, The period leading up to the First World War is often called the first wave of of globalization, while the current era that is generally thought to have started as Fink writes 30 years ago at the end of the Cold War, this becomes globalization 2.0. And the conventional view is that at some point the wave turns into its opposite. It's shocked into reverse by some crisis, a financial crash, a pandemic, or as in 1914 and again today by a war. And I think this binary perspective of intrinsic cycles or waves suddenly becoming inverted can certainly provide catchy headlines. You know, it's the headline of our forum, really. Uh, But it falls down because capitalism always operates both nationally and internationally at the same time. And as a result of this, economic internationalization, often equated with globalization, coexists with national economic developments, usually associated with the opposite, deglobalization. So putting aside the oversimplifications of the, the death of globalization perspective, I think a better starting point for us is that the world economy is always in flux. The balance between the international and the national is always changing. And so the pertinent questions for today become, what features or changes are likely to be magnified or sped up by the war and why? Now I think the most important impact, and this is what I'm gonna dwell on and expand in different ways. I think the most important impact is going to be the acceleration of the existing fragmentation within the world economy, both at a regional level and also at the national level. Now the regionalization of trade and production will I think continue into those three main uh, economic groupings, so we're familiar with an American led block a China-led Asia, with Europe as the third region. But alongside this regionalization, and especially within the American and the European regions, countries will also turn further inward, as as Rob mentioned in his introduction, with more national-state intervention and more protectionist measures. Hence, we've seen the many calls made in recent years for localizing production and the reshoring of what had previously been offshored sometimes mostly to Asia on the other side of the world. Now I stress that this is an acceleration of a trend. It's not something new that's happened because of the pandemic or because of the Ukrainian war, because fragmentation has been happening for a long time, becoming more pronounced, especially I'd argue since the financial crisis. These splintering trends have now established some momentum. And before today's conflict were given greater impetus, of course, By the experience of the COVID-19 lockdowns with all those disrupted international economic connections which made it seem both to politicians and to business leaders as it was simply good practical sense to look inwards or at least much closer to home for producing things like medical equipment or um, things not so much connected with the pandemic, things like semiconductors. Now looking at how these parallel trends towards national autarky on one hand and towards regionalization on the other, how those trends evolve, my argument is that although they both have material or economic drivers, as well also as geopolitical ones, and although the two, the economic and the geopolitical, are entangled, I think it's the geopolitical ones that become more significant in speeding up change, as is happening today. Now to look at these two sides, to briefly summarise the material side is quite straightforward and we've discussed it before in in previous forums. It's rooted primarily in domestic economic problems afflicting the advanced industrialised countries. Over the past half century their protracted decay in productive activity and in the slowing pace of productivity growth has underpinned both the internationalising and the nationalising features of recent decades. Each of these expressing one of the two main ways of coping with businesses' uh, profitability problems. On the nationalizing side, we see a greater business reliance on the support of their nation states. And on the internationalizing side, these homegrown businesses look to compensate uh, by extending their activities abroad. Sometimes this is through cross-border trading relationships conventionally increasing sales to cut unit costs through exporting or reducing production costs at home with cheaper imported supplies. But increasingly, uh, it takes the form of investing and producing abroad. Uh, I stress again, these two sides are not opposites. Indeed, the very process of economic internationalization is accompanied by increased national state intervention, because all the mature national economies, have been experiencing, though unevenly, but they've all been experiencing economic slowdowns over recent decades, and they're all therefore simultaneously being driven to operate abroad, leading to intensified competition on the world market. And this brings conflict, not just between businesses, such as, say, between Boeing and Airbus and the airline industry, but also between their respective governments, between the American uh, and the various European governments. In economic terms, then, regionalization can be understood a little crudely, but as a sort of compromise, a way of trying to combine the benefits of both internationalization and national control. Regionalization retains some of the cost efficiencies of a wider division of labor and of greater specialization than is possible within one single national economy, while it also enables more government clout than is possible at the global level. This operates uh, mostly for the governments of the dominant country or countries within a region, implying control for Washington and for Beijing in their respective regions, and in Europe, uh, to some extent, for Paris and increasingly now for Berlin. Now, mentioning Berlin moves us from the material economic drivers of fragmentation to the geopolitical ones. And this is where today's conflict, I think, marks a step change expressed in Olaf Scholz government's watershed moment that's been described and the pledges for Germany to become a more substantial military and foreign uh, policy power again now this sort of shift or the the shift that's illustrated in German politics highlights that while economic unevenness between countries and between different parts of the world provides the material component for the unraveling of the post-war order what happens in international politics and geopolitics is what leads to spurts of change In a sense, economics matter for disrupting previous international arrangements, but politics matters more. Big geopolitical shocks like today's can be pivotal, not as killers of globalisation, but as a wake-up call to Western politicians about how tenuous their old order already was. For Western leaders, geopolitical bombshells can bring existing trends and changes to the surface and force them into their consideration. One consequence is that protectionist measures that were previously widely decried as being extreme or associated with uh, isolationists like uh, like Trump, uh, these now become acceptable and in a sense normalized. Uh, I've already commented, we know that the uh, pandemic experiences uh, have already concentrated minds on economic resilience, as it's called, and self-sufficiency, and they have already started to legitimate protectionism and, and autarky. And this war is reinforcing those existing indu- inducements towards economic self-reliance, having highlighted uh, other external dependencies of Western industrialized countries, as, as Rob mentioned, not just supplies of fossil fuels, but various vital metals, as well as foodstuffs. Though the latter, as we know, is going to be a much bigger blow to poorer countries than it, it, it is going to be uh, to uh, uh, Europe or America. Now, all these sort of supply blockages, which are pre- consequent upon the war and the sanctions, are genuine material issues for many Western businesses. And, of course, they exacerbate the, uh, uh, the cost of living squeeze, which is going to be, be, be worsening. But I'd argue that within politics, nothing, not even a pandemic or climate change is as powerful as a stimulus for change as matters of wartime national security. Security concerns sort of focus the political minds in a way that nothing else does, something the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison captured recently when he remarked how, quote, the events unfolding in Europe are a reminder of the close relationship between energy security, economic security, and national security. In summary on this part, then, on top of the protectionist state actions taken for domestic economic reasons by different nation states, it is geopolitical considerations, first through the pandemic and then by today's military and economic warfare, that have made clearer to Western governments the urgency of building uh, economic self reliance, thereby reinforcing those existing autarkic tendencies. I'll end with three illustrations of how politics geopolitics, economics are all ready interacting to encourage fragmentation and how the Russian invasion could make them uh, even more overt. One illustration is about government and business interactions. One is about regionalization and one is about international reserves, currency reserves. First, on cross-border, the way that cross-border competition and rivalry have been helping to tighten relationships between businesses and governments. Even the most international of businesses like Facebook, Apple, Renault, Volkswagen, they all have a national dimension, which is institutionalized in their intrinsic connection to their own nation state. Another expression of that national and international symbiosis I've introduced earlier. As we've noted, this manifests itself in governments facilitating those protectionist trends of the past couple of decades which have contributed to all those state orchestrated tensions over trade, rules, regulations, and so on, that we've seen breaking out between regions and between countries. Now, I think the war will likely add to the closer integration of the public and private, of government and business, which in turn can ratchet up, and is likely to ratchet up the uh, inter-nation temperature. This is another reason uh, why we should not expect the recent appearance of Western unity against Russia to survive for that long. Indeed, different approaches over sanctions, over boycotting energy, what to do about Putin are already in the open. And adding uh, extra unpredictability to the mix of what is uh, coming up, there is still a conspicuous divergence uh, between economic and military warfare demonstrated by Europe's reliance on Russian energy and its reluctance so far to ban imports while it's simultaneously sending uh, lethal weaponry to be used against Russian forces. A bit of a mismatch, which uh, is is a tension which is being, uh, I think, uh, worked through every day at the moment. A second illustration of the politics-economics fusion is that superimposed on the trend I described uh, uh, and remind us of towards economic regionalization is the geopolitical bifurcation between uh, the United States and China. Because I think whatever transpires in the coming months between the West and Russia, uh, the geopolitical shake-up prompted by this war will focus again uh, on the split between America and China. Not only because China is of course much bigger than Russia, but also uh, far more interconnected economically and financially with the rest of the world. The primary geopolitical antagonism, even if there's a new Cold War in Europe, will continue to be that in the future between uh, Washington and Beijing. And today's showdown with Moscow is already being discussed in some American circles as a dress rehearsal uh, for the bigger one to come. An extra feature here is to recognize that many Asian countries, while economically integrated with China, will try to retain a, what they call a strategic ambiguity between the United States and China, try uh, and some call it keep a foot in both camps. So the idea of a consolidated Chinese geopolitical bloc uh, is not any time close, I don't think. Um, Adam Tooze, the economic historian, I think is right to talk about when he uh, talk about what he called the formation of polarities rather than the formation of blocks. Now this overarching U.S.-China confrontation also means that the position of Europe within the global order, I think, depends more on geopolitics than it does on the economics of. European-Chinese trade and business relationships. In the short and medium terms, European leaders could conclude that for all of Emmanuel Macron's talk of building European strategic autonomy, the member states are too divided to be able to overcome their collective dependence on the US, not least for their defense and national security. They could therefore uh, continue to throw in their lot with Washington as a junior uh, security partner or, the European leaders could decide that can be, given all the transatlantic tensions in recent years, they'd be foolish. And I, and I wouldn't, by the way, stress, I wouldn't limit those to Trump. They were there under Obama. They're there under Biden. Um, but because of all those tensions, the Europeans would be foolish to rely on America forever in today's uh, very uncertain geopolitical circumstances. And instead, they could opt to do their best to develop more independence as a third uh, uh, geopolitical region between the American and Chinese led ones. A third illustration of the political economic interactions driving fragmentation, and my final main point is the potential, (coughs) excuse me, is the potential that today's geopolitical crisis could advance a shift in the international order through undermining the global role of America's uh, national currency. Now, possessing the top global currency is one of the greatest assets a hegemon can have, uh, allowing it to camouflage economic decline and to sustain its geopolitical power. What is often called this exorbitant privilege gives America enormous borrowing and buying capacity and enables it to fund America's accumulated external debts and its ongoing current account and budget deficits. Now, based on the only precedent, that is Britain's replacement as hegemon by the United States, possessing the world currency is one of the assets that the declining world power is slowest to lose. We can recall that the pound sterling remained a significant global currency until its unambiguous replacement by the dollar during the Second World War. But that this was at least half a century after Britain had already been overtaken on a range of economic criteria uh, by both America and Germany. Now, this staying part <coughs> of a global currency derives partly from the network effect that because so many countries and businesses are using it, using the dollar for cross-border activities, it becomes enmeshed within international economic operations and is hard to replace. For instance, simple terms, dollar assets are attractive precisely because they are so easy for a country to sell. Unless, of course, you're Russia today and you're banned from doing so. In addition, the US Federal Reserve is seen by other governments as playing a crucial role during times of severe financial instability by providing what are called emergency swap lines to other central banks as it did during the financial crisis and again in the early months of the pandemic now for these and many more reasons the dollar has what's called incumbency inertia illustrating uh, illustrated rather in how it still makes up about 60 percent of central bank currency reserves about the same as it was in the late 1970s even though the u.s Economy now accounts for only about one fifth, 20% of global output. The dollar as a currency, therefore, plays a disproportionate role as world money relative to the size of the American economy. However, measures being taken by the US government to weaponize the dollar in an attempt to bolster its fading authority, and these didn't start with, uh, uh, with the events of the last few weeks. These attempts to bolster uh, uh, America's fading authority are starting to backfire. And this uh, hegemonic asset could switch to being a source of geopolitical instability. The effective measures taken at the instigation of Washington four weeks ago to clamp down on Russia's use of its central bank reserves, in particular those held in dollars uh, and in other Western countries' currencies, as well as limiting Russia's access to dollar-based payments and financial institutions, all these steps taken uh, uh, by the United States or led by the United States adds motivation for other nations to themselves de-dollarize by reducing their holdings of dollar assets and their dependence on dollar-based financial systems. Now, China, you're probably aware, has already been developing alternatives to non- alternative non-dollar financial structures in the same way that it's been building up other international institutions parallel to US-dominated ones. For example, we I've discussed in my book, the the role of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank as a sort of uh, China-led alternative alongside the World Bank. Uh, But after what's happened to Russia, other countries, including supposed allies of America will have greater reason uh, to diversify away from the dollar and to cooperate uh, with China in its uh, 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 parallel uh, uh, financial structures. Not just Russia, but countries like Indonesia have already been conducting a substantial part of their bilateral trade with China in Renminbi. Um, And Saudi Arabia, you may be aware, is in talks at the moment with China about selling it oil in yuan uh, rather than in dollars, which would mark a significant geopolitical shift. We should note, too, the efforts of the Chinese state to move faster in creating a credible central bank digital currency ahead of everyone else. This would Both make China less susceptible to American financial sanctions, and a digital yuan also offers other traders an easy way to reroute transactions and bypass the dollar-based system. And as the uh, recognized global first mover in this area, China is itself helping the Bank for International Settlements uh, to establish rules for the interoperability of multiple central bank digital currencies, which would further undercut the dollars used for payments between other pairs of countries. You may have read just in the last few weeks how one influential currency expert is arguing that the war might even speed up the diversification of reserves, not just into non-dollar currencies, but into hard commodities like gold. It was uh, Zoltan Pozar, uh, formerly at the IMF, former senior advisor to the US government, now at Credit Suisse Bank, He made the bold forecast that the impact of the war could accelerate the global monetary system, shifting from one backed by government bonds to one that is backed by commodities, comparing this crisis to the collapse of Bretton Woods era in 1971, when President Nixon took the dollar off gold. Posar has speculated that China could sell some of the US treasury bonds in order to lease ships and buy up cheap Russian commodities. Uh, And he anticipates that when this war and crisis is over, as a result, the dollar could be much weaker. And on the flip side, the renminbi much stronger, being backed by a basket of commodities. Now, my less dramatic view is that I think the imminent demise of the dollar as world money remains unlikely uh, over the next few years. But I think we should recall Ernest Hemingway's wise words about bankruptcy. How did you go bankrupt? One of his characters is asked. Two ways was the reply. Gradually, then suddenly. A continued gradual shift to a post-dollar financial world might also turn sudden in the same way, which I think would which would practically and symbolically be a trem- tremendous blow to the already much weakened American authority around the world. So to conclude, this scenario about currencies sees actions taken for geopolitical reasons, namely the financial sanctions on Russia, rebinding upon economics, namely undermining the global role of the dollar, which, while not the cause of Washington's declining authority, does reflect and could then reinforce its diminution and therefore could bring forward that disorderly fracturing of the world around two parallel monetary, economic, as well as geopolitical blocks. Thanks.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much, Phil. That was uh most excellent. I'll just take you off spotlight. Right, okay, so uh, the the floor is yours. There's an awful lot uh in what Phil says, I'll give him a break from talking for a few minutes. Um, if you'd like to contribute, if you go to the bottom of your screen, you'll see reactions and then um, put myself on spotlight, you'll see um reactions and then you'll see raise hand sometimes it's still under the participants button and then there's a little uh gray box that says raise hand so if you've got any questions or any comments please uh feel free to raise your hand and, and let me know you'd like to speak and feel absolutely free about asking basic questions i've actually got a couple of basic questions uh, i might ask phil but um Let's go over to you first. So I'll take myself off spotlight and then Josephine Hussey the floor is yours.
2: Thank you. Um, mine is a very basic question, I think. Um, I just wondered whether because of Brexit, at one level, um, Britain is ahead of the game in terms of does it put Britain in a, a better position? Um, because we've already kind of moved away towards a much more um, nation based support system business wise, but then how, how does that work at, um, at an international level in terms of um, Britain's or UK's um, involvement in NATO um, and obviously as you said that security concerns focus political minds more than anything else.
0: Great, thank you very much Josephine, uh, Giovanni.
3: Hi
4: Thank you so much for for, for that presentation. Uh, Quickly, Phil, I would say, don't you think that we are in a stage in globalization, that we are just too far into it, that most of the economies worldwide rely so much into the production of, of economic gains that they're doing outside of their borders, that now retreating and coming back internally and focusing on their own production and trying to sell to their own peoples? Much as they were doing outside, don't you think that it's counteractive and it's just gonna result in massive economic collapses?
0: Okay, thank you very much Giovanni. Uh, Robert Figg.
5: Um, hi, uh, thanks. Um, yeah, one of the things that I've noticed um, about this recent turmoil in the commodity markets has been that uh, China has fared no better Uh, than anybody else. As a consumer of commodities, um, it has been hit incredibly badly by um, erratic uh, and volatile markets. Um, And um, in particular, we are looking at the commodities that are produced um, in, in, in Russia and Ukraine being natural gas, oil, wheat, nickel and copper. All of those have been through some of the, m- the most volatile times ever. And China has, uh, as a consumer of those metals, has suffered quite badly as well. And I think that any attempt by them at the moment to try and change the terms, move, move away from the uh, dollar-based uh, commodity economy to one which is based on the renminbi would not be Um, received particularly well in the world economy because uh, China is still seen as, first of all, its currency is not freely tradable. And second of all, um, it is extremely erratic in terms of its policy making. And I think people would look to, um, at the moment, certainly uh, offshore, uh, their Chinese investments ma- mainly to uh, Singapore now that Hong Kong is no longer seen as a viable alternative. So, I, I'm I'm not entirely sure that um, that uh, you know I, I'm sure that China will play an in, in an attempt to gain control over some of these markets through the use of renminbi, but I think they're going to
0: find it extremely difficult. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Um, now, Donald Clark had made an interesting point in the, the chat. I wonder if I could encourage him to uh, speak up. Robert, yeah. uh, sorry, Donald, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah.
6: Yeah, I'd like to ask about something that wasn't mentioned in the analysis, and that's uh, globali- uh, climate change, really, because that transcends all the arguments for me and that it will put a break on glo- globalisation it will become what was called a globalization bombshell, bigger than any of these episodic wars. And yet the contradiction is that we need globalization to solve the problem. And there's the rub.
0: Okay, great. Thanks very much, Donald. Uh, Alex Cameron.
3: Alex, are you there? Oh, so I have to ask you to unmute, do I?
0: He's wandered off. <laughs> oh, there we go. I can't hear you, Alex.
7: <laughs> Can you hear me now? I can, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> right. Apologies for this. Sorry, it's either Spain or my laptop. Um, another basic question, Phil, you said many, many years ago, um, and it's taken this long to for it to kind of sink in, if indeed it has, this idea that um geopolitics um and national interest is is no contradiction. Um and I think sometimes for me, it feels like sometimes we skate over this a wee bit and don't quite get. Um, the importance of that um, um, insight of yours. Um, and how I understand that is tonight you've kind of talked about you see a trend towards regionalisation. In the past, we've talked about um, how um, the UK, Britain for Europe um, is, is, is destabilising riffing off what Josephine um, said a wee minute ago, does it not put Britain in a better um, situation or does it not demarcate Britain Britain for the rest of Europe and I kind of just logically I'm not sure that it does Um, we might be witnessing a real tremor at the moment in terms of um, geopolitics but still I don't see the contradiction is it not just a moment, Phil?
3: Right, okay. Just a moment, uh, Tony Pierce. Is that better? That's better. Sorry,
8: I needed to.
0: So zoom is very funny sometimes you need to unmute people sometimes you don't anyway hello
8: Yeah. No. <laughs> all right okay hello there yeah another great uh, uh introduction um i've got a sort of question around um national governments and corporations and international and their relationship and, and and i suppose in a way also related to that is uh international institutions so Well, Phil quite rightly says there's a a, a, a flow of capital, flow of corporations back to their sort of homeland governments. um, Is it always clear where those home interests lie? So, for example, um, uh, Shell uh, had to make a choice between uh, a Dutch-British company, but it seems to have located its headquarters uh, or will be head, locating his headquarters in London, much to the joy of the city. But the uh, how do those relationships start to rebuild after so many companies? I can think of one like uh, Ideal, which was sort of, you know, leading sanitary wear company that was British, went to Bulgaria, Uh it's still Bulgarian, but financed completely by Chinese money. Now, I don't know where its home is. Um, I don't know whether it knows where it is. Um, but the these big corpor- these big corporations, will they try, uh, they'll presumably try and play governments off against each other as well as um, develop relationships with the home country. So that's the first question. And the second is how does that relate to international institutions when it seems to me some of the really big corporations, you know, American financial and high tech corporations, seem to be um, stepping in where global institutions uh, used to go. And uh, uh, is that is that a process that will continue and strengthen over time? Great. Okay. Thank you very much,
0: Tony. I'm going to bring Phil back in, so I'll have to uh, uh, beg the patience of um, uh, various um, other people. But I've got I've got a couple of questions as well. Um, one is um, a basic one, which is about digital central bank currencies, because I want that somebody to explain that to me, whether it's Phil or somebody else. Because what's the difference between that and just digital currencies or digital payments or whatever. Why does the, the idea of a digital currency matter so much? Um, and secondly, just your, your thoughts on, Phil, on, on Germany, because I remember 30 years ago, at the time of the war in former Yugoslavia, there was a lot of talk about this was Germany's moment where it's going to kind of re-emerge on the world stage. And in the sense of obviously being the most important player within the EU, it did, um, but at the same time, in terms of this, a, a more a broader political or even military role, actually hasn't really happened to the, to the extent that perhaps seemed in the offing back then. So, is there? Is this one of these things where it could get all get kicked into the long grass yet again, if? Um, once this crisis is over. So just your thoughts on that really, uh, right.
1: <clears throat> well, uh, I suppose it's a bit of an answer to Alex's question in terms of setting the setting the framework is that, uh, you know, could this just be a moment by which I, I thought you meant Alex, you know, this will just pass and we'll back to where we were, you know, pre, um, uh, you know, er, early January or whatever. Well, uh, Obviously, anything is possible in terms of the unpredictability of things. But what I'm uh, arguing is that uh, something like what um, uh, what Rob just reminded us of in terms of the long time it's taken for Germany to go from reunification and becoming clearly the strongest economic power within Europe um, uh, to it then... Um, flexing a bit more of a an international geopolitical role. You know, it's taken an awful long time to do that. And I think that's indicative that I think this perspective, which uh, is associated with the perspective of globalization, but is also a general perspective of post-Cold, the idea of post-Cold War stability, that things were really the best of all possible worlds for, for, for the West. You had the, uh, you know, a, 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 a moral... Uh, triumph against the evil Soviet Union. Uh, you had relative uh, economic stability. Uh, you had apparently, you know, the, um, the vanquishing not, uh, of, of uh, inflation. You had apparently we'd achieved uh, an ability with central banks to be able to have this sort of great moderation period as it was described. Uh, and that uh, was seen to be happening within the uh, economic and the geopolitical sphere that everything was relatively stable. Clearly, Yugoslavia was a bit of a, 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 a interruption to that, but that managed to be that managed to be over, overtaken, or over overcome. But I think what this has done, as I say, what geopolitical um, uh, 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 flashpoints like this, what geopolitical earthquakes like this do, it uh, does have that potential for an awakening. Um, uh, and I think what happened in the in uh, in in the German Parliament and what happened with the new government there is indicative of that. whether it would happen with Angela Merkel has still been there or not you know kind of factual don't know but but I think it's indicative uh, of that sort of big jump that can take place whenever politics seems to uh, seems to change and therefore that's my perspective of this that this is one of those, uh, just as 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 Olaf Scholz told about it, a, a turning point in German politics, but also I think a turning point in, in in world politics. That the belief that everything was really stable under this unipolar world, where America was in control, uh, and okay, it's declining a bit over there, and it made a few faux pas by electing Trump and then, you know, a rather overhasty departure from Afghanistan. But I think when you have you know, a, a war happening on, uh, on the ground in this way, uh, and it's clear that there is a, uh, you know, and it creates that sense of unpredictability, then it, then it opens up these other possibilities. Now, today we're supposed to be discussing what the economic I- implications are, um, and, I'll, uh, you know, I'll continue to, to, to focus on that. But the point I'm making is that a, a geopolitical rupture, I think, poses those historic tensions more vividly and those tensions, to relate to some of the questions, are tensions, yes, which exist between nationalism and internationalism, between economics and, and, and politics. And that there's no easy resolution to those, uh, that they are uh, you know, generally problematic. I mean, Giovanni made the point that you know, c- couldn't we say we've gone too far toward, down the road of globalization, that there's just too much interconnection uh, at the moment to be able to, uh, f- for that either to reverse, or for that not to be entirely very very problematic, if uh, 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 either countries or companies attempt to uh, go back to their national base alone, if they really try to put into practice their uh, sense of uh, self-reliance and uh, uh, economic autarky, and I think Giovanni's right, it's it's it is a big problem for them. Um, there was an article I don't know if you picked up anyone at the at the weekend and in the Financial Times looking at something, you know, not, not, not linked to the war, the bicycle industry, where, you know, there's a lot of calls for reshoring the bicycle industry, even though it's not seen as a strategic good these days, but uh, the uh, Financial Times is highlighting just how difficult that is, given the complexities you know we're not talking about apple and 300 suppliers but the complexities of a bicycle and the global supply chains that have been developed over the period uh, uh, and all of the logistics involved and so on you know that that's not something that can just be replaced by saying well let's up let's set up a couple of local suppliers here one that does bicycle, you know wheels and one that does you know the forks and one that does the frame you know a you know somebody has to agree to do that but also it's 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 it takes time to be able to create anything like Uh, the levels of efficiency which there are elsewhere so that tension between you know wanting to have and politicians will express this as well wanting to have you know provide jobs at home and we've seen this for a long time particularly in America you know jobs for Americans but we've seen it in other countries Um, uh, as opposed to well okay you can set up a uh, a, say a domestically based bicycle industry but are you going to be able to sell any of those highly uh, high cost bicycles to anyone else in the world. So there's a, a playoff between uh, a competitiveness and creating a few jobs at home. So that is very problematic and generally stuff I've written before saying that I'm very dubious that reshoring uh, can take off uh, because of that. Uh, but it is that tension between the two, which I think is, is what we got to look out for and, uh, and explore. Um, let me just, uh, just a point about the currency thing just to clarify. Uh, the currency markets. Um, I'm not uh, anticipating, I wasn't trying to describe a scenario where the renminbi would take over from the dollar. I think that's very, very unlikely for the reasons that Rob uh, and others give. Yeah, You know, the, the, the Remimbi is not convertible. What is more likely? And this is interestingly, if you if you if you want to pursue the discussion about the currency markets. Barry Eichengreen is probably the, the world expert on it. Uh, uh, Eichengreen, his name is Barry Eichengreen. He, he wrote a book, Well, I think early, probably about 10 years ago on the uh, the exorbitant privilege, which discusses a lot of this. But he's still writing this, and, and he charts what is likely, more likely, he thinks, and he, and he talks about a, stealth, a stealthy erosion of the dollar, because he points out, that uh, while I said the uh, the dollar's role in uh, international currencies has stayed pretty much the same as it was since the 70s at 60%, it has gone up and down since then. And Barry Eichengreen concentrates on where it was 20 years ago, when the dollar was at uh, 70% of international currency. So he says, well, like if you look at that last 20 years, there's been a 10% decline. Okay, gradual, but it's not something that's created a lot of problem, a lot of uh, a, a lot of controversy. And he points out that the renminbi has benefited only a little from that erosion of the dollar. It's been other sort of currencies like the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, the Swedish currency, the Swiss currency. It's been sort of, uh, you know, mid-level currencies have been benefiting. And he describes this as a movement more towards a multi-currency world rather than the replacement of the dollar by the renminbi. The point is that, Moving to a multi, just as in politics, I think we're we're moving to more openly a multipolar world. around this belief that America could run the world in the way that it still thinks it can, we're moving more towards a multi-currency world, uh, and that doesn't then solidify or confirm uh, that uh, China's taken over because we're a long, long way for that. But what it does do is it undermines the ability of America to weaponize the dollar because it, 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 as if more and more, for example, the Saudi Arabian I'll finish on this, the Saudi Arabian-Chinese uh, discussion about uh, 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 pricing Saudi Arabian oil uh, not, in, uh, not, in, not in dollars. Well, that you know, creates a very different dynamic then in terms of the relationship of Saudi Arabia to, to uh, the United States as well. The ability of the United States to leverage its, uh, uh, its currency authority, in a sense, becomes steadily eroded. And, and it's, it's that sort of gradual process which I think could be accelerated, not to a culmination of something completely different in in six months time. But it's a it's a it's a trend which can be accelerated because of this greater openness, which is thrown up by the repercussions of the uh, of the Ukrainian war. I'll try and come back to some of the others later, but I've spoken enough at the moment. Great. Okay. so um, I hope
0: you can hear me. Uh, Ian Pegg. Hi, uh, sorry, sorry, I can't do the video. Uh, quite a, a very basic question. I'm glad Phil mentioned bicycles though, uh, the, the, there is, a, as in the difficulty of reshoring. And I think the, what's happening in Ukraine has given a boost to those who argue for uh, bringing industry home because it allows them
3: to put it in, in the framework of security
0: and resilience that there are real difficulties
8: with that in the in the way that bill and the others have suggested and i also think the the way is to suggest the only way forward
0: is to undermine the intimate uh, connection all right okay uh, I, I didn't catch a lot of that i'm afraid ian maybe if you could stick that some of that in the, the the chat because the connection wasn't great um Hillary salt
2: I guess i am trying to uh, navigate away between two polar opposites in my head one is that for China um, which owns it's over a trillion dollars isn't it of u s debt so you know a lot of its assets are held in 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 u s dollars so on that that level it feels really um Uh, against its interests for China to threaten uh, the dollar at at all but then I kind of pull the opposite if you if you just imagine China even just margin selling um US debt um so you know big fall in not just US bonds but western bonds I guess big big rise in interest rates which you know is is accelerated still still more by inflation which puts a lot of Um, Western companies under an awful lot of pressure because they're very highly leveraged. They've got loads of debt in them. Um, And that kind of leads to a kind of collapse of of Western industry, which kind of feels like that's in China's interest. So I I was just trying to kind of navigate in my head, you know, where where, where does that leave China in terms of its its best card to play?
9: Okay, great.
0: Thank you. Um, Peter.
9: Um, yes, um, it's interesting. Do you think there's much difference between uh, manufacturing and intellectual? It's interesting. I was reading a book, you know, and the authors in one country, the sub-editor elsewhere is printed in the third thing. And it's interesting that for all we talk about manufacturing on shoring, certainly it's going the other way. It's also the issue of raw materials. Uh, moving on to supply chains, certainly I, th- I think there's a general consensus that supply chains need to become more resilient, probably less reliant on just in time, more buffer stock. But it, could that, the solution of that be actually to have uh, duplicate suppliers in different countries, which is still a uh, globalisation, but um, just more resilient globalisation? A um, couple of thoughts. One, I was thinking, is it feasible to sort of have strategic three D printing parts? These things question about intellectual property because uh, who actually owns the things that are going to be done? And in fact, the whole issue about intellectual property and who's going to um, own, 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 own the property. And the last one was regionalisation. I think of the the UK. The idea of the UK leaving uh, um, the the uh, the EU was going to look abroad, which is fine. If you look at Asia, what might be how steady relations be there? Parts of Asia that are probably fine, other parts less so. This whole business what really is going to have the issue because you have very much just China on one hand and not certain other countries on the other hand so I'd be interested in, in your view on that. Right thank you very much Peter. Uh, Daniel Benjamin?
0: Okay can you hear me? Yeah. Great.
10: Uh, I, I thought Phil's framework was extremely useful i completely go along with it but I think I'd be a bit more cautious on the German uh transition, the watershed, or Vender, the kind of turning point in Germany and its significance, because I think we can only really say in retrospect whether it has or will be a big shift. Uh, I mean, I, I hesitate to say, to say this, because there are people on this call who know more about Germany than me, but it seems to me it's certainly right to say that it was very significant, because uh, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, Uh, had been seen as kind of quite weak towards Russia in relation to the Ukraine and towards Russia generally. And lots of people in his party, like the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, are very friendly with Russia. So it was significant that he stood up and said, we are having a turning point in German politics. Uh, But I think in retrospect, you've got to be a bit careful about saying how significant that is, because as people, including Phil and Rob, have already said, you, you saw... Tentative moves after the end of the Cold War for Germany to play more of a role. So, in relation to recognizing Croatia as a separate state in the former Yugoslavia and sending German troops abroad, which was a taboo after the Second World War. But also, in terms of what's going to happen, I mean, uh, Schultz talked about bolstering Germany's uh, spending, military spending, to over 2% of GDP. Uh, and bolstering the army, but will he do that? I mean, maybe, uh, it could be, and that would be significant, but pacifism is very entrenched in German politics. So he may find it difficult to do that uh, in practice. Uh, I mean, that's speculation. One thing we know for certain that he hasn't done so far, and which would be very significant from an economic perspective, is to get rid of Germany's energy transition. So, you know, there's a very big emphasis in Germany's energy policy, on uh, having a kind of transition to green energy. And theoretically he could have said, okay, well now our priority is to make Germany more self-sufficient in energy and to not wind down nuclear power stations. That could be a real priority, but that didn't change. That stayed the same. So uh, I'm not saying that the, this turning point won't be significant, but I think it's, we can't really say for sure now, whether it would be significant or how significant it would be. I think it will have some significance. Uh, And just one other very brief example along these lines, thinking about it in retrospect, it's interesting that the Clinton administration already in the uh, two decades ago, almost, was talking about, uh, sorry, the Obama administration, uh, was talking about pivot to China. So in other words, it was already clear that China was becoming an economic competitor to the US. So in order to do that, uh, America was talking about trying to contain China strategically, so uh, Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration, they were talking about pivot to Asia, but then they got bogged down in wars in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, now they've got bogged down in a war in uh, Europe with the Ukraine, at least, I mean, not directly involved, but in terms of being preoccupied with it, so that kind of imperative of the pivot to China, they're finding it very, very difficult to do, even though they talked about it uh, almost 20 years ago now. So I think Phil's uh, Hemingway quote about gradually and suddenly is very apt that you do kind of see these gradual shifts and then things suddenly happen. But I think it's hard to be sure of their significance, except with the benefit of hindsight, which clearly we don't have yet in relation to the uh, Ukraine conflict.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Johnny.
6: Yeah, hi. <clears throat> yeah, great introduction, Phil. And um, I think I, I actually uh, agree with you, Daniel, as well. I was thinking about crisis theory. You know, the, the idea is that the shape that's always driven is like a slope. And you're in your go-kart and you're going down the slope and you see the cliff edge and then you try and break. And then you you're left it too late and you crash over, uh, you know, and then you dust yourself out. And as you're walking up, you realise you'd actually lost control way further up the slope. You know, you were already too late. Before you even saw the cliff edge, and you can only do that in retrospect. And that's like that's like crisis theory works, isn't that's a crisis model. And I think that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? Because you can you 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 don't you can pick up these little tags along the way, but it takes a, it takes sometimes it takes a sort of a an external shock, like COVID has done to, to the retail sector. The retail sector was already dying or was going through a massive transition, but then COVID comes along and just forces that issue. Well, because you look back and you can see what was happening. Just another point. talking about these one of the differences that we have these days. Uh, it, it, the, I was thinking about the, the Google versus Australia, uh, not cricket. Um, the um, because when, when when Google were when they got into a kerfuffle with the, the Australian government about uh, paying royalties to local newspapers and for, for streaming news and stuff like that, Google was just threatened, threatened to, to pull just pulled pulled out of all all those streams and you know destabilised a whole lot of people's economic models. Quite a minor incident in its own way. But once you looked at it and you thought about it, you thought, yeah, what happens if they just shut down Google Maps for Australia? You know, we, 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 these, these international companies, these multinational companies, um, own huge amounts of our infrastructure or control huge, huge amounts of our infrastructure, which we couldn't easily replace. Um, and, you, you know, the, the, the Google Maps is, is as important to, to water delivery in the UK and probably in Australia as the water companies are, because that's how people get to the pumps and, ma- and maintain them. And that's all our telemetry's done. I just wonder whether one of the one of the sort of resonances from this is that we're going to start seeing people when we say, to re, you know, drawing stuff back in, trying to 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 recover some of those those uh, vulnerabilities that people have got. To um, to to the the power of these completely uncontrolled uncontrollable uh, international uh, multinational organisations.
0: Right, thanks very much, Johnny. Um, a useful little thing going on in the chat. Ian's just been clarifying his comments earlier because we couldn't really um, hear them very well. Um, was. Um, about um, the difficulties of, of um, reshoring and the, the, the costs involved. And he ends with a, a very interesting question about there's nowhere a discussion of the possibility of a, of a new viable world order. So that maybe that's something that Phil could come back to towards the end, whether there's what possibilities there are for, for that um, to happen. Um, now, James Woodhausen has been waving virtually at me so um <laughs> without being able to put his hand up so james the floor is yours? yeah
11: good um <clears throat> well uh great performance by uh phil just in your article phil um you distinguish between an earlier phase of financialization and debt with a later more recent phase of state intervention and i think you were referring to this when you talked i think about the fusion of state and capital really in the most recent years um and a more aggressive policy um would it be an accurate summary of your thesis uh with that happening on the economic side but understanding the supremacy of geopolitics uh, Nevertheless, that you know national state intervention has a tendency to lead to geopolitical intervention and interventionist wars. It's only a formula. Intervention leads to intervention uh, with different kinds in mind. But it kind of, or maybe it doesn't capture what you're trying to say. The second thing is, I do think um, Robert Figg and my own entirely amateur compared with Robert's interest in Commodities, mining, um, lithium, cobalt, and all that sexy EV stuff. Uh, I do think we need more work on all of that question and um, would be delighted to work with Robert on that. I just want to urge that commodities nowadays include Taiwanese chips uh, because if you can't get them, you can't have a car and you can't in a hurry have an iPhone. Uh, And stuff like that. Uh, Obviously, there's a Foxconn dimension, but so commodities for me, including agriculture, not just minerals. uh, Although Russia is extraordinarily strong in all minerals, I can give you a table. All goes back to Mendeleev, I reckon. Um, You know, commodities. We need a nice. uh, Sorry, Rob. Uh, (laughs) You know that we need a nice, all-embracing definition. Although we understand that chip production is not the same as food production or uh, lithium production. And just while we're on chips, the thing that I think most went unnoticed was the, I think, continuing collapse of NVIDIA, the American chip company, and its attempt to take over Arm Holdings for 25 billion quid. That attempt was rejected by the British government or, or blocked on national security grounds. That's new in show business, I think. I mean, obviously, there have been tiffs before, like with Suez and Westland and all of that stuff. But when you're talking chips, it rather underlines it, that if, you know, NVIDIA is not allowed to take over by, uh, by the British government on a kind of committee for foreign investment in the United States, Cepheus kind of basis, that is a new stage in uh, protectionism. Just an end note, Rob, or a coda. Um, I always used to look at the Reshoring Institute uh, in America for the reshoring numbers, which were always what the trade union movement would call delisely. And looking at the most recent thing, the website no longer carries the numbers quite that it did. But the projection for 2021 in America, the projection for 2021 was 138,000 jobs being reshored. Now, I'm with Phil. I do believe that the new tensions, you know, like to do with commodities. You'll have more mining in America. They're already talking about that. And Robert will help us on that. You will get some kind of acceleration of reshoring. But that would be from a very low base. You'd have to do 10 million a year, really, to jobs, or at least 1 million a year to make a difference. 138,000, even double or triple that, not going to do it. Great.
0: Thanks very much, James. Right. I'm going to bring in uh, Phil. Lots and lots on the table. (laughs) Yes.
3: Oh, Oh. I've lost you. Can
0: anybody else hear Phil? Sorry.
1: Sorry. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yes, good. (laughs) Sorry, beg your pardon. I think a good point to take up on is, is from Daniel's point, um, but it relates to what James was just saying in terms of the relationship of politics and economics, because that's the thing I've been, uh, you know, playing around with, both originally in that Beyond Confrontation book, but, but you know, in, in years since and also even more so over the, over the last four weeks. Because I think what I'm talking about is in terms of, uh, uh, you know, what are we calling watershed moments or whatever, doesn't reverse the whole Nature of economics uh, and sort of somehow puts back in the box the whole sort of internationalization trend that has happened or uh, miraculously creates material resources which don 't exist so to, to take daniel 's point i uh, i 'm e- equally dubious as he is as to whether uh, the schultz government 's pledges to spend two percent will actually turn into two percent you know in, in, in the next period, uh, however, the very fact that uh, you have, you know, uh, German politicians talking about uh, we were naive to believe that uh, interdependence would be a stabilizer. You know, i.e., you know, they're admitting that they were, you know, caught, captured by that old idea that uh, uh, economic independence leads to peace. You know, because we're so dependent on, on Russia we thought that that would be sufficient. We've now realized we were naive is effectively what they're saying. Uh, and therefore we have to build up our, our independent military strength. And, you know, we'd like to be able to become more um, self-sufficient in energy over time, but obviously steady on, we can't do anything in, in, in the short term. But it's, it's, it's that that sense of uh, that perspective on things has changed or the ideas have changed is what I think is most important about this. How it actually works itself out in terms of you know, how much Germany spends on new tanks and what form that takes and so on is uh, by the nature of our uncertain period, entirely unpredictable. But the fact that they are, are having that discussion is what I think is, is important, it changes things. Uh, that, that's a small example of a broader thing, which James was talking about, which is in terms of protectionism. You know, we, sh- we, we should remember that not so long ago, Uh, you know, protectionism was uh, 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 condemned as being, you know, narrow, insular, you know, isolationist mercantilism, taking us to the dark ages. How could anyone do that? Now, you know, uh, me and others have spent time pointing out, you know, that actually protectionist measures, both tariffs and the, you know, non-tariff barriers have been on the increase in particular since the financial crisis. We've described all that, but it was something which was, you know, put under the carpet. You know, yeah, people could read just like I could read global trade alert reports, which say, you know, protectionism is on the rise. There are all these uh, export controls, all these uh, subsidies taking place and so on. You know, th- those things were there, but nobody pr- nobody wanted to talk about it. It was one of those sort of, you know, non-talked about or invisible gnomes or whatever, the, 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 whatever way of describing it. They knew it was happening, but nobody had to talk about it because it was much better to have this, view of the world that protectionism is bad we're globalists and we're good and we're bringing peace to the world and everything's going to be hunky-dory when you have now with the combination of the pandemic legitimizing you know uh, the calls for self-sufficiency whether they actually turn into anything whether there is a a new semiconductor industry built up in europe or a new semiconductor industry manufacturing plants built in america wherever there'll probably be attempts to do so as james said but whether those get realized or not Is less important, I think, than the fact that it is now normalized to talk in those ways. You know, when you have, you know, The Economist, you know, which is long, The Economist magazine, long standing mouthpiece for the merits of globalization saying basically, well, there are more important things than trade, you know, um, you, know we, you know, we can't find ourselves, allow ourselves to be dependent on these autocrats, whether it's Putin or Xi, um, you know, therefore it's, it's quite legitimate to, uh, you know, have a bit of a movement to autarky. When you have, you know, longstanding free traders saying, well, some things are more important uh, because of the new geopolitical situation, then that uh, marks this shift in, uh, in outlook. Which then can have repercussions. Which you know, I know more than anyone else here are able to determine what those uh, uh, what what those unfolding steps will be. But what I'm stressing is that we we I think we're moved into a different stage of greater fluidity and, and and unpredictability. And therefore, we need to be more open to things which are which which are changing. I mean, for example, I've changed my view of of inflation uh, as a result of what's happened because. I was of the view, as people might know if they've read any of my articles on it, that I I was in this sort of uh, um, the transition camp or the transitional camp perspective of saying, right, inflation that we've seen last year was very much a supply side problem uh, predicated upon the pandemic you know, disrupting things, it was an, an exogenous shock to the system, you know, all these logistic problems, all the closure of factories because of the lockdowns and so on, then it was inevitable that there was going to be this uh, dislocation to supplies, or rather that uh, was was uh, an inevitable consequence of all that. And that sometime that would work itself out. I think now with the geopolitical juncture uh, changing, then, uh, you know, what's happening, what Rob and others were describing, what's happening in the commodity markets, could well go on for a, a very long time, and that supply side shock, uh, which of particularly foodstuffs and energy, which then feeds through to anything else, means that you know uh, inflation, you know, could be with us for a very long time, and that's going to combine lots of problems domestically for the central banks, blah 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 blah. So the the the, the, the condition, the context, has changed. I think because of, and not just we need, to, not just other people change what it is we need to change it is, but also the, the conditions have changed which means approaching the same issues uh, with a different perspective. I'll leave it there and think about all the (laughs) things.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Austin.
4: Uh, Hi. Um, Hopefully my signal holds out. Just very quickly in terms of these kind of changing perspectives, changing conditions, obviously China's, had this kind of autarkic uh, mentality for the last 75 years about, you know, after the Second World War, making sure that it had enough grain, enough uh, stocks to uh, be self-sufficient in case it was ever attacked or isolated, uh, or actually isolated itself, didn't it? So it was a self-protectionist measure. Um, But I'm just interested in the the shift in protectionism from like you're talking about in terms of like market controls and and tariffs and, and all the rest of it. Into the more kind of suspicious globalization conversations with Huawei, you know, where it's not so much that, you know, this is an imposter external uh, um, a business going to infiltrate our market and take our jobs, etc. It was more, can we trust them not to steal our secrets and be spies in the camp? And I just wondered whether there was, a, I mean, like you say, seeing things differently in terms of war, in terms of how we now see um uh competitors much more on a political rivalry rather than necessarily just on a purely economic market rivalry uh, just if you got any comments on that hopefully that made sense but in terms of the um the the way china's operating i mean 10 12 years ago i think the state owned enterprises within china were around about 11 to 15 percent of the economy of gdp and now they're 40 percent and rising um and that kind of con- consolidation with the state um actually you know bringing um bringing the private sector which has now been allowed to flourish um, they're kind of capitalizing in both senses on that so you have things like alibaba jack ma who was you know hidden away for three months uh secreted away they've taken 250 billion dollars off his uh stocks uh, which they've just incorporated within the within the state but whether you see that kind of state-owned enterprise as a sign of strength within China or a strength or a sign of weakness within China, uh, I'd be interested to kind of hear your views because um, it it kind of seems to be that that idea about the um, autonomy of private sector uh, companies to be able to um, you know, to have a dynamic of their own, uh, which could then lead to a globalization in the sense that we've always understood it, seems to be kind of uh, falling by the wayside. And the Chinese state is now kind of um, maximizing its its um, its control over all those systems. So, do you see that as? Because I do understand that China is biding its time. It's not ready to kind of take control over anything yet. It hasn't. It's not been on its radar for quite some time that it's going to be the world leader or you know take over a global economic uh, dominance. But it's you know it's in there in in part of its kind of agenda. But I just wonder whether you think this is being hastened or whether you think that uh, you know the, the China is still playing softly, softly, and the state-owned enterprises is just part of its kind of developmental strategy. I hope uh, my signal held out there. You're looking very painful, so maybe you maybe it didn't make sense, or maybe you you missed some words. But anyway, there you go. Okay. Um, right.
0: Well, that was fine. Um, I, I'm just, there's a bit, a bit of an interesting discussion going on over in the chat again. Um, Penny Lewis has raised the point about zombie companies, which is something of a um, something you've raised numerous times in the past Phil. and what happens to them? I mean is that going to uh, does have the state have the resources now to do the kind of um, support that's kept those uh, companies going? Um, and Hitterary notes you know with rising interest rates, maybe that's going to tip some of those companies over the edge so, Um, what's the sort of national uh, economic impact of of the things that have been going on at the moment. I'm going to take James Woodhausen because he was angling to get in and then Robert Figg. So, James, you
11: had one other point. I'm sorry, Rob. Could you let Robert go first? Because I think he's going to be more germane. And then I'd prefer to follow him. Etiquette, you know.
5: Uh, okay, Robert. I'm I'm not too sure about being germane. I I, I thought it was British actually. Um, now, I, one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, uh, the role of the Chinese state in in recent events, uh, where it was seen to be protecting um, this uh, private company called a uh, stainless steel company who had caused the um, immense uh, volatility in in nickel, uh, where the state intervened to uh, say that they would back a privately owned company through using the strategic reserve stocks of the government. And we've also seen Biden do very much the same thing, releasing stocks from the strategic reserve of oil. Uh, which is something that hasn't happened for some considerable time, um, and I think that um, it does really, in, in many ways, represent a failure of uh, political activity in the sense that Biden failed in in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere to get the release of um, oil, and China itself, um, you know, in, in as one we've been talking about it, trying to sort of Um, establish itself much more substantially as a a currency and a a market of note um, really reacts quite quite accidentally to what is going on in the world market often. Um, And it's really just a panic response uh, to protect protect its own assets. Um, and I, I do think, though, that um, there has been a significant um, relaxing of international tensions as a result of uh, the, um, poli- the the duties that were imposed by Trump and others to protect the North American steel and aluminium industries. I think that um, those have been lifted uh, in many ways. And um, um, so I think that what's happened in Ukraine has led to a much more dramatic change in the, in the way things are done at the moment. And they do tend to be very reactive rather than policy-based.
0: Thank, thanks. Right. Um, James and then Patrick, and then I'll come to uh, um, Phil to round things off. So James Woodhouse. Well, it,
11: it's just, a, it's just a, a footnote, Rob, if you can hear me. Yeah. yeah. Um, I omitted to mention nuclear. Now, on Thursday, the government's going to make a, not a white paper, but a big announcement on energy security. And uh, wind and nuclear are obviously ideal for the sort of autarkic uh, direction in which we are headed to the extent that we are. Um, what's interesting about that, just by the way, is that... Um, as early as 2013, the endlessly anagrammable Fatia Birol, uh, who always makes a cameo at our discussions on energy, he was elected to the IAEA, and that was apparently on quite a pro-nuclear ticket. After that, in 2013, the IAEA and even the IPCC uh, plus the EU were all coming out in favour of nuclear much more than before well before the Ukraine crisis. So again, you've got a Phil-style trend that was going on which was totally exacerbated by what's happened. At the same time, it's worth noting that in COP26, Cop nuclear was the spectre at the feast. Nobody was banging on about nuclear. But cumulatively beforehand, and partly because some American states under the influence of Michael Schellenberger have gone nuclear, that, uh, you know, this sort of protectionist dynamic uh, is, I think, fairly well ensconced uh, before and certainly after. It be interesting to see the balance um, Boris adopts between wind and solar, uh between wind and nuclear. Uh, he's been vacillating on that. What a surprise. Okay, thanks, James.
0: Uh, right, uh, Patrick Schumacher.
12: Thanks, guys. So I just want to make a few comments on, I mean, picking up from Austin where he sees the, let's say, the, the world, the realm of the economic becoming ever more politicized, moralized, in context with China in particular. Um, I think it's very important to note that, and it's quite risky and dangerous for the UK, for UK businesses, what's going on. So first of all, yes, the... the in China, the state-owned companies gaining more ground, uh, most private big companies are getting more and more controlled by the Chinese government and the um, relative strength and power of market force in China are being restrained. Um, but I also want to talk about the overall feelings in the Chinese educated, uh, let's say straighter, middle class, um, and the whole atmosphere. Uh, is one where, where it 's quite tricky where they 're very prone to watch out how Chinese are treated uh, prone to boycotting a whole industries whole companies and uh, so it 's very risky for u k business who are very much becoming dependent on china first of all the way the u k is gung ho about uh, the 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 anti russia the sanctions uh, you know the uh, war crimes and indicting Putin. And the new level of sanctions, I think, is very, very carefully observed in China. And, and, and there's a lot of companies who came out, uh, you know, demonstrably withdrawing from Russia. And I think there's, that's very, very much noted. And I feel, I mean, I have some ears, I'm kind of in some of the uh, educated Chinese uh, youth groups and media. Uh, there isn't, this is this kind of polarization um first of all also remember that the, for the last two years there wasn't a single white or european face inside china so it as beca- much more isolated although a lot of business going on with respect to our industry um more and more there is degrees of protectionism with respect to international companies uh th- there's mandates from the government for, for instance in the real estate sector that all ha- private companies have to make competitions and have equal numbers of uh you know, local versus foreign firms coming in. That the uh, that the uh, when that when a foreign firm picks up a job, it can only go up to 50% of the fees. So it's it's. But then again, I think what's very important to see the the mood uh, uh, where the Chinese uh, you know internally people who are studying abroad are becoming seen as traitors. Uh, there's a lot of attention to if, if Chinese students are abused. Uh, in, um, there's a totally heightened sensitivity. It's difficult for us to perceive this kind of level of the Chinese government is able to foster this level of nationalism and nationalist uh, identification. You saw it, I saw it the first time, very viscerally, in 2000, with the Olympic Games when there was boycotting. Boycott so these are also kind of very risky and dangerous situations for a lot of UK business. So And, and it's true that it gets highly, highly politicized and uh, I just wanted to close with. Um, I mean, the Western media, I think, is I'm I'm, I'm really nearly depressed and atrocious one side, and is all let's say cheering on Ukraine, anging on to 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 not compromise anything, and there's not the no media out that has any analysis of underlying causes, motives. It's just attributed to a crazy Putin and, and the basic, basic facts of you know, uh, NATO, mem- NATO membership of, of Ukraine, uh, the, the refusal to recognize Crimea, et cetera, uh, sensible steps which could be taken now. Nobody's discussing which what are the concessions which we essentially made. I should have been discussed it at, at day two or three. And instead, we're we we having enough sunk costs and even literally saying, how can the Ukrainian now get, make any concessions after all the suffering. So they're just, they're just pushed into, into, an, into an impossible situation, uh, pushing, pushing on, pushing on. And I think it's absolutely responsible uh, where the, with, of course the Western country NATO will never touch Ukraine in terms of membership of the bar, although it promises having life, life border conflicts. Anyway, I just want to say, this is hugely depressing and frustrating. The media are absolutely, and I, you know, except for Spike, <laughs> a bankrupt and, and and off the chart uh demagogy.
0: Okay, thank you. The <laughs> world in five minutes from and particular. Chinese,
12: China, China, and I'm watching a lot of Chinese international broadcasting where they're from day one had a very, very balanced and, and, and a proper analysis of the historical circumstances which brings to this point. And by the way, of course there's nothing which could ever, you know, justify and I'm also condemning the, this invasion by the way of course.
0: Okay right <laughs> okay so on that uh, note uh, so Phil um there's way too much on the table for you to cover so just pick out the the, the highlights whatever.
1: Yeah uh, well uh, thanks Patrick for that but I, I won't comment on those things I mean I, I have sympathies with a lot of what you're saying in terms of the the way that the West is has been using this uh, uh, conflict for its own, uh, uh, as seen as a possibility for itself to morally rehabilitate itself. I think that relates to um, Josephine's question right at the beginning of the discussion in terms of uh, Britain's particular intervention. I think uh, uh, Josephine, you're right to talk about uh, the, 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 the opportunity which Britain was able, or it's Johnson was able to uh, 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 take from, from being uh, independent of the European Union to be able to uh, uh, strike its own stance on this uh, play upon its um, uh, historical military strength um, uh, and fortunately for it it had a lot of these uh, uh, anti-tank missiles uh, in stock so that it could uh, pass those over I think it uh, uh, I think it's I would imagine what Britain is seeing is a possibility, not so much of expressing how global Britain will work out, but an opportunity to try to uh, align itself with its old partner, America, and see that it can be a, you know, a, a helpful li- lieutenant to the United States. And to the extent to which it can do that, that that uh, allows Britain to continue to do it, sort of punching above its weight situation. It doesn't obviously resolve any of the problems. Um, uh, and, you know, I'd be very, if, if the war is to go on for a long time, I think we'll find that those stocks of, British munitions uh, will very soon run out because uh, uh, if you recall, we've already got one of the smallest armies. I don't know if James will probably be able to tell me, smallest army since beginning of the 19th century or something. You know, uh, uh, it's, its abilities to actually turn its... Uh, um, it's militaristic posturing, which I'm sure would be a, a, a term Patrick might use into reality, is, is sorely materially uh, uh, diminished. But anyway, leave that to one side. I think just on the domestic side as well, or we'll perhaps tricking on from that as to that discussion about the zombie companies and so on. I do think that this um, I do think what Hillary said on this, that it, it, that could be one of the uh, one of the um byproducts uh hillary said in the chat that uh you know it could be that interest rates are going to rise further and faster than had been anticipated i think that's another one of those situations where we moved into a different uh context a different framework um i do think uh i mean uh, me and others have been banging on for some time about the uh dilemma that central banks are in that they've created this mess for themselves of a of a what i call a debt trap that you have created a world which is Uh, or Western economies, which are uh, floating on debt, which uh, at one level would seem to then uh, uh, contain their ability, or or restrict their ability, rather, to be able to increase interest rates. Um, But they're now in this situation that, uh, with inflation uh, going to be higher and uh, maybe faster growing than people had thought, or at least certainly more durable than had been anticipated, they are being pressured to make those steps to uh, in- increase interest rates. I mean, the, the, the measures which have been talked about so far are still pretty low when we're talking about 2 to 3%. But if you consider zombie companies that have been paying, you know, perhaps, you know, uh, something in the range of 3 4% or something if they've managed to work out a good loan deal and that going up to 6 or 7% whenever interest rates rise, that can be a considerable uh, a, a considerable problem. So I think the people who are indicating in the discussion that this can aggravate... Not just geopolitical tensions but also aggravate the challenges uh, that governments have at home british government as much as any uh, it, it, uh, are, are i think uh, are yeah, i think that's an appropriate way of looking at it understand i mean uh, thank you so much so many really interesting comments and although i haven't answered them all like uh, central bank digital currencies, for example. Um, I look forward to listening to the discussion again because I think there's a lot of things that I can uh, pick up from on this in terms of uh, avenues for thinking. But just on the China side, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I think China um, on on Austin's points. Of, uh, I think that the my 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 general take at the moment, despite being as critical as anyone else in this. Uh, discussion of the uh, uh, domestic, um, uh, 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 the domestic political circumstances being outrageous in 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 China and condemning those, um, I think its economic strategy is still working fairly well. I think it has done things which other Western governments have uh, have recoiled from doing. I mean, if you consider what it's done on the property, uh, the real uh, the, the, the 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 real estate crisis, you know, it has made an attempt to try to rein that in uh, rather than it, it leading to some major uh, uh, implosion. I think in relation to its, one take I have in relation to its control from the center on the social media companies there, um, partly I think that is linked to their uh, uh, more single-minded focus on developing the industries of the future, the, the, the 5G, the AI, the quantum computing and stuff. I think they thought a little bit too much of their resources was going into a bit flaky stuff um, uh, of social media and e commerce and so on. And I think they are wanting to focus their uh, scientific, technical, technical expertise and so on on the areas which are really going to make a difference in the future. And I think uh well it's very difficult from the outside but from people i read who i respect or i think i've got a good track record it does really seem that china is parring ahead on those industries of the future and are on a par with if not ahead of uh, uh, uh of the united states uh and that is something which i think is uh is going to provide a material uh, underpinning to uh, what I was talking about in terms of the geopolitical bifurcation, which could be accelerated by this, I think one thing just to say to look out for to end with is is um, that uh, tension between politics and economics as it affects, say, the American government and American businesses uh, in, in relation to China, uh, because uh, you know a very a large number of of important. Uh, American businesses rely enormously and European businesses I should add rely enormously on the Chinese market and on Chinese production. Um, I think it was Patrick who made the point about you know a lot of British a lot of western companies pulled out of China pulled out of Russia uh, and it was a striking phenomenon that uh, there was so much of this what they call self-sanctioning that uh, western companies were doing a lot more than their governments were asking in terms of pulling out of Russia uh, uh, an expression of what people have correctly dubbed not so much corporate social responsibility as corporate political responsibility, which is a, an expression of that sort of whole uh, uh, politicization of business that we've seen in recent years. Uh, but I think pulling out of China is a very, very different situation to pulling out of Russia. Um, uh, and if you think of a country like, uh, sorry, a company like Volkswagen, I was reading, you know, one half of its global profits come out of its Chinese uh, operations. You know, it's phenomenal. If you look at Apple, if you look at Tesla, if you look at you know f- big financial institutions, you know, BlackRock. I was talking about you know Larry Fink talking about the end of uh, the end of globalization. Very interesting in his letter about. Uh, to shareholders from BlackRock, uh, big long letter, China does not get a mention at all because BlackRock is quite big in China. It sees that as part of its future. Uh, similarly, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, so all the big names, the money is still within China and sees that as the future. And yet, if uh, if the, uh, the presentation of the world's new order as being between democracy and autocracy is what firms up through the aftermath of this war, then that's going to put that relationship of businesses allying with the enemy, allying with the evil empire, allying with the evil autocracy uh, uh, under a lot of strain. So that's, I think, one thing that we should be looking out for, just how American business and the American government who have this symbiotic relationship, uh, uh, are going to be able to negotiate that. It's going to be a, a difficult one. As far as what China should be doing, I think uh, Austin's right. They should sit back and see how this works out because they're relatively in a strong position at the moment. And uh, they've got no, no reason to rock the boat over this. Uh, they should uh, you know, look after, which they're doing better than others, look after their own national self-interest, which they seem to be doing. Anyway, thank you again for all the comments and I will follow them up. Thank you. Uh, there.
0: Thank you, Phil. And now it's time for the always unsatisfactory um, Zoom round of applause for our speaker. Mm. So thank you very much, Phil. <laughs>